The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're reviewing the topic of luteal phase support. We've invited Dr. Elena Labarta, who is at EVRMA Valencia, where she's a senior reproductive endocrinologist and serves as the medical coordinator of clinical trials. She's been researching this topic for several years now, and she recently published a very, very interesting paper on the effect of progesterone on IVF outcomes, and we wanted her to tell us all about it. Dr. Labarta, welcome to Fertilipod again, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, doctor. It's a pleasure for me to be here uh, today with you, talking about this interesting topic. Yeah, let's start. let's start by reviewing the basics. What are the difference between natural and artificial cycles. Let's start there. Well, first of all, I have to explain that uh, when doing um, frozen embryo transfer cycles, we can choose these two options, okay, to, to transfer the embryo in the context of a natural cycle or an artificial cycle. Uh, the main difference is that in a natural cycle, there is a corpus luteum producing endogenous progesterone. So, um, we supposedly we don't need the support uh, uh, with exogenous progesterone, although in many cases we use progesterone just to cover all the those possible cases with a luteal phase defect. Okay, but um, in any case, the the requirement uh, in terms of amount of exogenous progesterone are lower because we are covered by the endogenous progesterone, and in the artificial cycle. The, the fact is that as there has been no ovulation because we prepared the endometrium artificially just by giving a sequential um, uh, treatment with hormones mimicking the natural cycle. First, we give estrogens, and second, we start the luteal phase when we start progesterone. Obviously, with this treatment, we, we block the ovulation, the spontaneous ovulation, and there is no endogenous uh, production of progesterone. There, there is no corpus luteum. So it is very, very important to uh, give the patient uh, an adequate dose of progesterone to cover the luteal phase. Now, what do we know so far about the effect of luteal phase support? I mean, until we had your paper what was our understanding of the effect of luteal phase support? Well, um, until now, um, we thought that with the luteal phase support that we were giving to our patients, we were covering more than enough the needings in terms of amount of progesterone. Uh, in fact, we were systematically giving 800 milligrams of uh, vaginal mi micronized progesterone to all patients. And according to 
all those studies of pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, we thought, okay, it's more than enough to, to cover the needing of the luteal phase. And until, until the year 2015, we, we were doing the luteal phase support, just uh, how to explain that. I mean, we, we, we choose the, the protocol of luteal phase support according to the, the, um, the center or the doctor or the country, but we were not uh, monitorizing the luteal phase. And uh, if there is any uh, way to do this, is by measuring serum progesterone. But uh, we thought uh, that measuring serum progesterone was not uh, reliable because uh, based on previous studies in natural cycles, we knew that le the levels of progesterone can vary a, a lot throughout the day. But the difference between a natural and an artificial cycle is that in an artificial cycle, when uh, giving vaginal progesterone, the levels of progesterone are quite constant throughout the day. So after six hours on progesterone exposure, the patient is going to have um, a steady concentrations of progesterone. So if you measure progesterone, um, the, the, the levels are, are going to be um, very constant throughout the days. So it's much more easy to, to monitor the luteal phase. And um, this is one of the, the, the reasons why we were not measuring serum progesterone. But secondly, we thought that uh, it was not worth to measure progesterone because the levels in the blood were not reflecting the levels in the uterus based on previous articles. But um, in the year 2015, there was a, a paper that was published and this is the paper that inspired us to, to start our research on this. Uh, this paper was published by Jovic uh, from an Australian uh, group. And uh, they saw that there was a correlation between serum progesterone levels in artificial cycles and uh, the pregnancy outcome. And they define it like a window, an optimal window of serum progesterone uh, in which they obtained the, the best results. But this was a retrospective study, and this is why we decided to start our research uh, on, this, on this topic. And we designed the prospective studies. So you've you've actually been studying this for a number of years now, and this new study that you recently published builds on a previous one from from 2017. Can you tell us about that first paper in 2017 to get some background of what you've been doing up until now? Yes, this uh, this first uh, paper uh, was done uh, in outside donation treatments in a sample of 211 patients. And, and we did uh, this study in outside donation treatments because we wanted to rule out the embryonic uh, factor as a, as a possible confounding factor. And in this study, we prospectively uh, analyzed the serum progesterone levels the day of embryo transfer in artificial cycles. And um, we were blinded for the result. That means that um, we didn't know the levels of progesterone and we continued with the uh, regular luteal phase support. 
And surprisingly, uh, when we analyzed the results and we split the, the sample in four groups according to the percentiles, we saw that those patients below percentile 25 that corresponded to the level of progesterone of 9.2 nanograms per ml uh, had 20% lower ongoing pregnancy rate. And this is too much. This is too much in reproductive medicine. So we were like scared because this means that one out of four patients uh, showed low levels of progesterone or were like infratreated. And we um, asked ourselves what to do because this was a very important um, conclusion. And uh, before changing our daily practice, we decided to uh, do an internal validation of our results. So this is why we designed the second perspective study that has been recently published this year. And in this study, we included a much larger sample size. Uh, we included uh, 1150 patients and, and we included patients uh, using donated or owners because we wanted to see if uh, these results um, previously obtained could be extrapolated to, to, the, to, to the general population that we treat every day in our clinics. And well, once again, we saw the, the relevance of serum progesterone levels the day of embryo transfer on the pregnancy outcome. In this case, we saw that the critical, critical point was 8.8 uh, nanograms per ml of serum progesterone, very close to the previous one. So obviously there can be some uh, biological variation, but it is around nine nanograms per ml. And well, we, we once again, we saw that there was an 18% lower ongoing pregnancy rate and also a, a decrease in the life rate and increase in the miscarriage rate when progesterone levels were low. This uh, critical point of 8.8 .8 nanograms um, corresponded in this sample to the percentile 30. That means that 30% of patients were uh, um, infratreated, were having inadequate levels of serum progesterone. So uh, with this two prospective studies, we, we have included in total almost uh, 100, no, no 1,400 patients. I mean, I think the sample size is uh, big enough to draw these conclusions. And many, many other studies have been appearing in the last years, but most of them have been retrospective. So the advantage of our studies is the, the prospective design that allow us to better define the critical threshold because we don't manipulate the luteal phase according to the levels of progesterone. Right. And all of these patients, just to get a little bit of background on how you treated these patients until you measured the progesterone, uh, my understanding is you used vaginal progesterone in all of these patients, all the same dose. Can you tell us a little bit about how these patients were managed up until then? Yeah, I mean, uh, all of them are usually treated like that with the same dose of uh, vaginal progesterone, 800 milligrams per day. And well, after after observing these results, we obviously, uh, we decided to change uh, the, the luteal phase management and we started uh, treating 
all those patients with inadequate levels of progesterone uh, with an extra dose of subcutaneous progesterone uh, from the day of embryo transfer onwards. Um, we observed curiously that um, the, the, the patient has a tendency to, to, to repeat the same situation. I mean, if the patient has a background of low levels of progesterone, uh, with 80% of possibilities, it will have, again, a low level of progesterone, okay? So you, you can predict quite well which patients are going to have inadequate levels of progesterone. And trying to elucidate um, which um, risk factors of having uh, low progesterone levels uh, can be present, we have seen that the weight is the most important factor. I mean, overweight patients show um, more frequently inadequate levels of progesterone. So the first uh, thing that we learned was, okay, perhaps we should individualize the dose of progesterone according to the to the weight of the patient. And uh, until now, we thought that as the, the, the dose was administered vaginally, the, the, the body fat or the body weight uh, perhaps uh, had nothing to do with this, this absorption. But um, surprisingly, we, we saw a, a clear correlation. You found a threshold of 8.8 .8 nanograms per milliliter on the day of, of embryo transfer. And to sum up what you were saying, you found that these patients, patients under that threshold, had a significantly lower ongoing pregnancy rate, 36 versus 90, sorry, 36 versus 54%, and lower life birth rate, much higher miscarriage rate. How did you reach that threshold of 8.8? .8? Why specifically that number? Well, because uh, this uh, high sample size allowed us to um, stratify uh, the population in the, the styles, okay? So we, we divided the, the sample in 10 groups according to the, to the, the styles of serum progesterone. And curiously, we, we found that 8.8, .8, that was the decile 3 or percentile 30, um, was when critically the, the chances decreased. We analyzed, uh, well, one by one, uh, all those patients between 8.8 .8 and 9.2, okay, just to see if there was um, the critical uh, point was uh, between them, but uh, we absolutely uh, saw that the critical point was there. And uh, it sounds like, well, 8.8, .8, why 8.8? .8? Okay, because it's what we have seen, and thanks to the high sample size, we, we, we could define this threshold. Right. I thought it was it was very interesting between both of your papers that, you know, in your original paper, you had a much smaller sample size. You divided it into quartiles, I believe, and reached that that 9.2 nanogram per milliliter. In this case, you divided it into deciles and you reached 8.8, .8, which is very, very similar. And that that is is great. I mean, it, it, it speaks to the to the robustness of this finding of this data. Yes, yes, we are uh, really surprised that uh, in all the studies that have been done after uh, these previous ones, uh, the results are always similar. I mean, so uh, 
this is one of the strengths of this study, and mainly because another groups from other centers uh, tell me the same. Okay, um, we are finding the same in our clinic, and this is this is wonderful because this does not depend on the laboratory or any other factors. I mean, all, all the groups are doing the same, and they have they are observing the same results. So this is really nice because. Uh, this means that is the the the, the real truth, I and mean, it's so important to to define this. Right, and the the women in your study received, like you were saying, eight hundred milligrams of, of vaginal progesterone daily for the five days leading up to the transfer. But thirty percent, right? That eight point eight uh, threshold was the thirtieth percentile. So thirty percent of these patients failed to reach that number. Do you think other forms of supplementations, oral, rectal, subcutaneous, intramuscular, could be more effective at reaching that level specifically? Yes, well, uh, I think that it will depend on the patient, but uh, uh, for sure, these type of patients with inadequate levels of progesterone need another type of supplementation or an extra supplementation or perhaps another type of cycle because we have seen some patients who are resistant to, to the vaginal progesterone in an artificial cycle. And when we move to a natural cycle, they reach much higher levels of progesterone. It is incredible. Uh, so um, obviously, uh, we have learned a lot of these results because the, the impact, the clinical impact of these results have been very, very big all over the world because you have to know that vaginal progesterone is the most frequently used way of administration of progesterone, okay? And this message is very strong because we, we realize that we are under-treating uh, 30% of, of patients, okay? Uh, and based on the, the previous pharmacodynamic studies, uh, we, we, we hypothesized that perhaps in these patients, the addition of subcutaneous or intramuscular progesterone could increase the serum progesterone levels and could uh, solve the, the situation. So this was like the, the second part of our way of research. Um, and, and we, we have, uh, being treated, uh, treating uh, patients with subcutaneous progesterone because intramuscular progesterone is not available in, in our country. And in those patients showing uh, low levels of progesterone the day of embryo transfer, we started adding an, an additional injection of subcutaneous progesterone from the day of embryo transfer onwards until, until the pregnancy test. Surprisingly, um, we have been able to solve this problem with this personalization of the luteal phase. Uh, because when we have analyzed a sample of almost 2,000 patients, um, we, we have seen that uh, all those patients with this individualization of the luteal phase support show similar results in terms of ongoing pregnancy to those with adequate levels of progesterone from the beginning. So uh, this is, um, well, the, 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 the evidence that this personalization works. The, the question is if 
well, perhaps uh, we could also increase the levels of progesterone by adding other routes, for example, oral route, rectal route, and not um, moving to the need of a parenteral route. Okay, so uh, obviously there are many um, things to study, but some uh, studies from the from from Denmark have demonstrated also that the addition of rectal um, the rectal um, way of administration could be also uh, positive to obtain adequate results. At the end, I think that the, the, the main problem of these patients is like they have a limit in the vaginal absorption of progesterone. So the, the solution is not increasing the dose of vaginal progesterone because they cannot absorb more and we need to give uh, the progesterone by other groups. Right. Did you find, uh, aside from the impact on the on, on the ongoing pregnancy rate and the miscarriage rate, did you find that the progesterone level affected obstetrical outcomes in any way? Well, we we analyzed that, and we we couldn't see any any difference, uh, any uh, significant difference, because uh, I was, uh, well, my hypothesis that was that perhaps these patients with inadequate levels of progesterone could have more risk of preeclampsia or hypertension during pregnancy, because, well, you know that some publications have suggested that perhaps natural cycle can prevent from preeclampsia thanks to the relaxing or uh, produced by the corpus luteum, and this is not present in the in the artificial cycle. But I thought that perhaps progesterone had something to do with this also, but uh, it didn't. It didn't. So, uh, well, we for the moment we we could not um, conclude that those patients with low levels of progesterone had more obstetrical complications. But obviously, the, the, the study was not designed for that, or the, the, the statistical power was not enough to conclude anything. So, so interesting. What, um, so, this is already affecting the care you provide your patients, and that you're already individualizing um, the, the luteal phase support in your patients based on these findings. Um, what do you think is is left to know. What do you think we should study next in this area um, to, to try to improve outcomes even more? Well, I think uh, that um, according to the to the studies that we we are doing now, uh, we we need to um, to analyze what is more important if having high levels of progesterone in blood that we have seen according to our clinical data that this is very important or also in the uterus, okay? Because at the end, uh, the embryo has implanted in the uterus. The uterus uh, gets receptive uh, by the effect of progesterone and, and we need to ensure that uh, adequate levels of progesterone are also present in the uterus. And this is very difficult to measure because you cannot do a biopsy or you cannot analyze directly the, so easily the levels, uh, the intrauterine levels of, of progesterone. So I think that, uh, well, the research has to be focused uh, on both things. On one hand, 
to ensure a, a, a good uh, level of progesterone in the bloodstream because we have seen that this is very, very important for the maintenance of pregnancy and, and uh, with this regard, the, the, all the uh, immunological factors that progesterone influences on this and, and on the on the immunotolerance during pregnancy. And I think that uh, the, the, the relevance of having adequate progesterone levels is uh, also because once the patient is pregnant, it helps to maintain this pregnancy. But on the other hand, we have to focus also on the endometrium and on the levels of progesterone in the endometrium. And perhaps if we finally uh, find a way to, 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 to offer the patient the best concentrations of progesterone, either in the uterus and in the bloodstream, perhaps we obtain the better results because on one hand, we will be favoring implantation Thanks to the uterine levels, on the other, we will be favoring the maintenance of pregnancy by increasing the levels in the in the bloodstream. And finally, uh, well, one important question is if too much levels of progesterone could be detrimental. For the moment, I have not seen a real deleterious effect of high levels of progesterone. In fact, those patients on the percentile ninety uh, show it a slightly lower. Uh, uh, ongoing pregnancy rates when compared with percentile uh, or decile uh, eight, but uh, but not significant, not significant. But the, the question is, well, perhaps if we give too much progesterone or intramuscular progesterone, for example, too much uh, uh, doses because with IM you, you reach uh, like very high levels of serum progesterone, this could be detrimental or not. This should be also well-defined by well-designed studies. Absolutely. That is so, so interesting. And this paper, I think, is going to, is already changing how, how you care for your patients and how, how others will as well. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Labarta, for sharing your research with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me. I'm really excited with all these findings. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of FertilityPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Bye.